had that scripture put onto the frame of John and I. So I've got that hanging up in my, in my living room. Um, I love that. I thought a lot about the concept of being a servant this week. And Jesus gives us the best visual and the best picture of being a servant in John 13, 1 through 17. It's Passover week. It's the last Passover that he is going to be on this earth. And he tells his, servant, his disciples that he came to serve. But he doesn't just tell them. He actually shows them. And I usually don't do this, but I'm going to read something from Max Lucada instead of the actual scripture because this is just this was an emotional lesson for me so I think I've got it under control but if I don't just bear with me so this is Max Lucada just kind of like let your imagination go you can just maybe close your eyes or just whatever you have to do to just kind of let these words sink in it's been a long day Jerusalem is packed with Passover guests most of who clamor for a glimpse of the teacher. The spring sun is warm, the streets are dry, and the disciples are a long way from home. A splash of cool water would be very refreshing. The disciples enter the room one by one and take their places around the table. On a wall hangs a towel, and on the floor sit a pitcher and a basin. Any one of the disciples could volunteer for the job but no one does. After a few minutes, Jesus stands and removes his outer garment. He wraps a servant's girdle around his waist, takes up the basin, and kneels before one of the disciples. He unlaces a sandal and gently lifts the foot, places it in the basin, covers it with water, and begins to bathe it. One grimy foot after another, Jesus works his way down the row. In Jesus' day, the washing of feet was a task reserved not only for servants, but for the lowest of servants. In this case, the one with the towel and the basin is the king of the universe. Hands that shaped the the stars now wash away the filth. Fingers that formed the mountains now massage toes. And the one before whom all nations will one day kneel now kneels before his disciples, hours before his own death. Jesus' concern is singular, being a servant. I love that. I, um, Jesus washed every one of the disciples' feet. These are the men who, in just a few hours, all but one of them is going to scatter. Peter is going to deny him three times before the sun rises. Judas is already set in motion. Um, selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and having him go to his own death. How I I get the, I get, I understand the God part that, that we will never understand how God works and he's so mysterious. And I understand that that's how he could wash the disciples' feet. But the human part of him, how could he do that with these men who are gonna abandon him, who are going to betray him, in his darkest hour of need. And the only way that I could wrap my head around this is Jesus could wash Judas's feet. He, he treated Judas like he treated all the other disciples. They, they sat with him, or he sat with them. He taught, he sat under Jesus's teaching. He ate the food with them. Um, 
He slept with them under the stars. He followed him around. And Jesus even gave him the job of being taken care of the money. He was the treasurer of the group. So how could Jesus wash Judas's feet knowing what he had already done and what was ahead of him? And I believe that he could do that because Jesus knew whose he was. He was God's son. Um, if someone shunned him or someone betrayed him, he didn't need people's approval. He knew he was doing the Father's will, and serving was easy for Jesus because of whose he was. He was not serving for the praise of men or even the reward from his heavenly Father. He served because he was obedient, he loved the Father, and he knew that was honoring to the Father. Jesus came to serve, but he's the savior of the world. Um, it's just, it's a very sobering thought. So the question comes, why would we obey or serve? Why would we want to obey or serve? Well, obedience is such a little thing after everything that God has done for us. God has given us our salvation. He has given us all of our blessings. He has given us our next step, even when we don't know where that next step is taking us. And he gives us our next breath. We couldn't even have our next breath without, without him. So obedience really is such a little thing compared to the lavish, I love that word lavish, um, the lavish way that God loves us and provides for us. <clears throat> and Nehemiah understands this. He has the heart of a servant. Here's our first brick here. And we're going to find out that Nehemiah is kind of a big deal. Um, he lives in the king's palace. So my prayer for this study is just to draw you into the story of Nehemiah. His name means Yahweh comforts. And what an incredible, awesome name to bestow on a child in exile. Yahweh comforts. If you know me, you know that I have three children, and my husband and I... Um, put a lot of thought into the names of our grandchildren. Um, our daughter is named after two great-grandmothers. Um, our oldest son is named after um, a great-grandfather and my, my dad. Um, our youngest is, um, has a beautiful name and he's named after um, a favorite uncle of John's. So just significance in names. Now, if you know me a little better, you're gonna know that I have grandchildren who don't have, don't have names like that. I have, I have an Eef, yes, E-E-F, which people will say if, they call him if all the time. You've never heard that name, you probably never will again, Eef. I have a Felix, which is a little girl, and if you're of, around my generation, the only Felix that comes to mind whenever I hear her name is Felix, that cartoon cat, that black cat, and um, she's, She's, she's a trip. And then I have Wyeth. It's not Wyatt, it's Wyeth with a lisp, Wyeth. So my kids did not take our, you know, our, uh, well, anyways. <laughs> and we, we, yeah, my husband kept saying, you know, they're gonna be teased at school and you know, my kids, they had no clue. But I love that Nehemiah's parents named him this very beautiful name. Um, they had no clue if their son would ever step foot in Jerusalem, but they give him this beautiful name of hope. And one of Nehemiah's brothers that we're going to meet today, his name is Hananiah, 
and his name means my grace or my mercy. So these parents chose names built on these be- based on these beautiful attributes of God. Um, so verse 1, let's get to the chapter here. I'm going to read it. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakawaiah. Now it happened in the months of Shizlev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital. So the New Living um, Testament actually, instead of uses the words, he says memoirs. So we learn right away that this is a historical or a biography written by Nehemiah from personal knowledge or experience. This is Nehemiah's journal. And I'm very passionate about journaling and I have journaled for years. It's kind of why I've invited you to journal through this study. Um, Journaling is a way that I process life. It's a record of my prayer requests. It reminds me of God's faithfulness. Uh, It's a way that I can cry out to him in difficult times. It's a record of my failures and my victories, or God's victories. It's, um, It's a way of measuring my growth. I've taught myself to be more grateful by journaling because I record my blessings and I see them on black and white. It's not always pretty, but it's my story. It's my my record of my sanctification process and it's a very healing thing for me to do. I remember when I was a little girl, my grandmother, my mom's mom, um, kept a diary with a little key. Do you remember that? (laughs) And so whenever I was there, um, she never locked it, even though she had this little key. But, and I know she wouldn't have mind if I'd asked her, but um, when she would walk out of the room, I would open it. And she would record things like, it wasn't a spiritual record per se, but she would record things like, you know, what the weather was that day, um, what she'd fix my grandfather for dinner, um, what else? Uh, somebody had come over to visit. And um, I'm sure occasionally, once or twice, she would even write something about her favorite soap opera in there. But, you know, that was her. But I remember um, always looking to June 22nd. And she never missed a year. She would always say, today is Denise's birthday. And that made me feel so special. So I always knew that I wanted to journal. I just didn't know what that was going to look like. And so as I got older, I thought, well, journaling is going to become my spiritual tool. And maybe my grandchildren will one day pick up one of my journals. And I would love for them to know, like, the things I struggled with and that God was faithful in spite of my sinfulness. Um, So I just, journaling is very very near and dear to my heart. So right in verse 1 here, where we're told that it's personal, that this is a firsthand experience, I love to read. And I love to read people's memoirs and biographies because I love to know people's stories from their own lips, okay? Because that's one thing that you can never take from somebody is their story, okay? So being invited to have this firsthand look at Nehemiah just immediately just draws me into um, this book. Verse one also tells us that Nehemiah is the son of Hakawaiah, okay? This is the only time that his father is mentioned in the Bible, but it's an important reminder to us of how important family is, like our roots. We're products of our parents, the good, the bad, the ugly. And this is Nehemiah's way of honoring his father. We're gonna see that 
<clears throat> see that Nehemiah's heart is drawn towards his nationality and the people of Israel. And it must have been his parents and the way he honors his father, probably his father, who taught him that. I'm going to drill this point in because it really sticks with me. Remember, Nehemiah has never stepped foot in Jerusalem. He is 800 miles from this homeland. He had been born in captivity. He'd worked his way up to be a cupbearer in the king's palace. Again, he's a big deal. His father was probably the example of integrity and hard work. Um, and I would like to believe that he saw his father practice his faith and taught, teach them, teach these brothers of God. It's one thing to be faithful when everything is going our way. It's another thing to be faithful when the faithful God that we've been taught about seems very distant. And this would have been a time where they could have used the excuse that God seemed very distant because they've been born in captivity. They've never stepped foot in their homeland. But instead, um, Nehemiah is very drawn to the news of this homeland, even though he has never been there. The month of Shizlev on the Jewish calendar occurs during the months of November and December on our calendar. And the reference to t being 20 years could have been one of two things. It could have been how long Nehemiah had actually worked in the palace for the king. But most scholars are in agreement it's the second where it's, uh, that's the number of years that this king has been in reign. Excuse me, so that puts this book in the, in the timeline where it seems most appropriate. Um, this was written around, they say, 446 to 445 BC, if you know how to follow those dates. Nehemiah is in the capital of Susa. Uh, it's kind of the equivalent of our Washington, D.C. It's the political hub, it's the center of activity in Persia, and in other words, it's kind of the, the hot spot to be, and Nehemiah is right in the center of it. He is in the king's palace. So let's go on to verse two. That Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So his brother, one of his brothers comes to visit him and Nehemiah is full of questions. How's everybody doing? What's going on? And by saying one of his brothers, we can assume that he had more. So possibly a large family. This brother has traveled 800 miles to see his brother. So I like to assume, which is probably taking liberties, but I like to assume that it was a close-knit family. My kids are all in different states, um, three different states. So when they go to visit each other as a mom, it's just, it's just the sweetest thing. Uh, Nehemiah's brother has already returned to Jerusalem. Nothing here again is mentioned about his father. So more than likely he has already passed. Um, and scholars also say that we can safely assume that his father, their father, was also born in exile. Just the timing of everything. So um, he was a generation that um, had been born in exile as well. So this father could have been bitter or maybe even resentful towards God that, you know, he's never seen his homeland. Um, he has to raise his children um, without the background of their culture and their religion. But instead, 
he teaches them about God, and he names them after God's attributes. So I just think that that is just such a cool, um, cool fact about him, even though he's only named once. Verse 3, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Okay, the remnant is the number of people that God said that he was going to save and protect from all the exile. Remember, there's thousands of people that um, are taken um, and there's going to be a small group that um, will remain and go back to Jerusalem. So this report that's coming out of Jerusalem is very concerning and it's a twofold concern. The first concern is it gives a description of the people, that they're in great trouble and distress. And the Hebrew word that um, the great trouble is uh, translated from is perhaps one of the most strongest Jewish words uh, or Hebrew words uh, used in its language. It means danger, disaster, calamity, misery. So all these things which are very detrimental to life. The second word, disgrace, is the Hebrew word which means reproach. And if you don't know what reproach means, it means like very disappointed, disappointed in. Shame. I've heard it taught that shame is the devil's stamp on you which prevents you from seeing your worth, the worth that God sees you. Scorn. Insult. Contempt. The, nation, the other nations were in contempt of, of, of this, this, this people. They were always being threatened. This is exactly what Ezekiel had prophesied would happen as a result of Judah's sin and how the Lord was going to judge them for that sin. And Ezekiel was born in Judah, and he was captured in the captivity. So Ezekiel is writing these words in Babylonia while he's in exile, and he is one of the major prophets. So they would have had access. This was probably about 100 years before Nehemiah, so they would have had access to Ezekiel's writings. But 2 Kings, and I want to turn there if we can, 2 Kings 25, and we're going to read 8 through 11. This is just going to kind of give us a little bit of, of history of, of what happened. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the ninth, 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. So this is... This is what happened about 140 years ago. So Nehemiah is hearing that after 140 years, nothing has really gotten better. In fact, 
the people have returned, which is good, but it's kind of morale and, and the living conditions are at an all-time low. But he also knows, and we're going to just turn to Ezekiel 28. And we're going to read 25 and 26. Well, actually, does somebody want to read that for me? Ezekiel 28, 25, and 26. No? Thus says the Lord your God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I have gave to my servant Jacob. And they shall dwell securely in it, and they shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord, their God. Okay. So they like that. They like hearing that. So Nehemiah is thinking, maybe taking for granted that this process has already started, if not completed. Scripture tells us that the first group and the second group that have gone, remember there's three waves, Nehemiah is going to be the third wave, they have actually tried to rebuild. They have started that building process. Um, king Cyrus is the king that allowed them to first go back like 140 years um, prior, and he allowed them to start rebuilding. The only thing was the enemies, the surrounding nations around them, um, told lies and scare tactics. And they went to King Cyrus and they said, look, you know, these people, if you let them continue building, they are going to revolt, they're going to rebel, they're going to, you know, try to um, take your kingship um, away from you. So, and, and remember that for another lesson, um, a few, I think it's chapter three, remember that, that's an important point. But, so it's in 90 years, uh, or 140, 90 to 140 years that, um, these people have started to return home, and this prophecy that we just read in Ezekiel has not been fulfilled. There's no security in the city, there's no prosperity in the surrounding lands, and the city and the people just still lie in waste. So Nehemiah hears this, this news, and this is his response in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is overwhelmed. He sits down because this news is just too great for him to hear standing up. He weeps. He mourns. He has this gut-wrenching sorrow. He prays and he fasts. He does all these things for a people he's never met and a place he's never been, okay? He may have known a handful of these people, um, but chances are not. I mean, he knew his brother, obviously. He would have had very limited access um, outside the palace walls. He, Nehemiah was on call 24-7. Whenever the king was hungry or thirsty, Nehemiah had to, had to be there. Nothing could pass the king's lips before it passed Nehemiah's lips. So he would have never been far from the king's side. So Nehemiah's response just kind of, it, it kind of like unsettled me um, because I started thinking about that and I was meditating on it. And I said, I cry over my sin sometimes, 
well, if I'm really honest, it's maybe not even the sin as much as the consequences that I find myself in. Mm -hmm. Um, I've mourned over circumstances that loved ones have found themselves in over their sin. Uh, I do pray for my family regularly, and I pray for friends. I have compassion for world events um, that I see on television, um, and it's been full of them this week um, with all the, the events that are, are happening. And I, I have just a heart for people that are suffering, but... My life has never been interrupted with the intensity that Nehemiah's life is being interrupted with right now for strangers. Okay? Nehemiah is broken for these people and he's and the condition that they are living in. He could have easily said a quick prayer with his brother. Oh, that's awful. What can I do? And not not asking like what can I do, but like what do you want me to do about this? I'm working here in the palace. You know, I've got a roof over my head I'm grateful for. I have good food to eat. God's blessed me with this job. I know I'm supposed to be doing this job. I'm going to pray for them, but what else can I really do? I live 800 miles from these people. I don't get vacations. So I feel really bad, but I'm kind of good. So, you know. But Nehemiah tells us that rather than turn a blind eye to this news that he's just received, he's going to pray. And this is verses, the rest of the chapter, 5 through 11. And I'm going to tell you first off, and Karen had a great idea. I didn't know that the pink pens I gave you last week were pink ink, but great highlighters. So if you have the e, uh, English Standard Version, which is what I'm going to read from, um, I want you to, every time you see the word servant, I want you to circle it. And there's, every time there's the word servant, there's also going to be your in front of it. I want you to underline it. So I don't know if you feel comfortable marking in your Bibles, but I feel it's, it's okay to do. You have permission to mark in your Bibles. So I'm going to read 5 through 11. I'm going to read his prayer. And as I do, circle servant and underline your. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him 